Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, it's great to have you with us for the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Good, bad, and crazy martinis for you today as usual. We've got a stool saved for you, so sit on down and uh, join us for these discussions on what I think are three pretty significant issues. And Jim, let's uh, jump in with our, our good martini, of course, first. And uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, I think in a couple of ways, this is a, a good martini. Not sure how this came up at a uh, public event, but uh, the issue of Chinese protests, Apple's uh, reported limiting of options for protesters to use things like airdrop in, in sending messages and so forth. And then at the same time, Apple threatening to remove Twitter from the App Store due to some of the decisions Elon Musk is making. Musk says, of course, in the uh, cause of free speech, um, uh, Apple suggests that some of the people he's letting back on are dangerous uh, to the discourse, and so therefore uh, they shouldn't be on there, and so they're they're reconsidering Twitter's status in the App Store. Ron DeSantis sees a massive double standard, and he's not afraid to call it out. And so if Apple responds to that, uh, by nuking them from from the App Store, you know, I think that that would be a huge, huge mistake, and it would be a really raw exercise of monopolistic power that I think would merit a response uh, from from the United States Congress. And so, uh, don't be a vassal of the CCP on one hand, and then use your corporate power in the United States on the other to suffocate Americans and try to suppress their right to express themselves. I guess they're consistent in Apple and suppressing speech that they don't want getting out there in both ways. But DeSantis is, uh, has a great point about uh, these companies supposedly being all aggressive here in the United States and then subservient vassals, in his words, uh, to the CCP. So, uh, Jim, uh, he's finding his footing on a national issue, and I think that's significant, too. Yeah, look, we all expect Ron DeSantis to run for president in 2024. We don't expect him to formally announce it until probably the middle of next year. I assume he would want to be, have the session of the Florida State Legislature done uh, before he decides to dive into the presidential pool. But between now and then, you're going to see what is likely this. I don't know if you characterize it as a soft, open uh, quasi-campaign, but I suspect we will see Ron DeSantis dipping his toe in the water and talking about national issues and international issues more frequently before we get the formal announcement and the you know unveiling of what a DeSantis doctrine would be and things like that. On the merits of this, look, I, I there's a there's a kind of I don't say facile like too simple argument that gets rolled out in situations like this is like oh well such and such is a private company they can do whatever they want. And therefore, you know, you're violating free market principles, you're violating uh, government control of the economy. If you look at that and say, no, that's wrong, they shouldn't be allowed to do that. Look, the app store is a really big deal if you're creating an app, if you are a social media platform. And if Apple had had some sort of uh, sweeping restriction on anything they deemed um, that could be construed in any way, shape or form as hate speech, and they said, wow, we're really not comfortable with what Elon Musk is doing right now. Well, at least there'd be some context to it. But when you're effectively cooperating with the Chinese government, you're, you're clearly okay with certain suppression of speech, as you said. You're certainly okay with <laughs> certain powerful institutions saying, no, you could be like, but you aren't okay with uh, Elon Musk opening it up more. 
By the way, the more specific the Apple complaint gets, the more if they said, well, actually, here are the people who Elon Musk has uh, restored the accounts to. And they're saying hateful things and they're saying things that we think creates an unsafe environment. By the way, you know, you could throw on the Ayatollah of Iran. You could throw on Louis Farrakhan. You could throw in like there are it's not just that there are right wing maniacs in this world who say terrible things on Twitter. If you pointed to other ones, then people might say, oh, okay, you know, Apple's got a point there. Or, hey, Elon Musk, are you sure you want to do this? I strongly suspect Elon Musk is going to, you know, un, uh, going to restore some of these accounts. And then these some of these accounts are going to go back to doing the exact same stuff they did. Holocaust denial, Nazi imagery. Uh, we're going to put you in the ovens. All kinds of stuff that we got back in, you know, years ago. And he'll have no choice but to say, okay, nope, sorry, you're out, you're gone. Your account is suspended again. I see. I think some people are interpreting this as Elon Musk is okay with absolutely anything and everything. And I think at some point Elon is going to have to say, no, no, freedom of speech doesn't necessarily involve that. That is a threatening message. That is crossing the line. That's not what we want this platform to be participated in. But for now, he's kind of giving everybody an amnesty and giving them a chance to be on better behavior. Spoiler alert, I don't think they're going to be on better behavior. I think some people are incapable of it. But we'll see how that shakes out. But the double standard laid out by Apple, that is absolutely unsustainable. Good for DeSantis for calling it out. And I think it is a good... I mean, again, he's focusing on this, whereas, you know, there's a certain former president who last I saw was ranting about Karl Rove. Because Karl Rove has been front and center in our minds the last couple of days. <laughs> well, there are certain people he's not letting back on. I don't know how small the list is, but he's made it pretty clear Alex Jones isn't coming back. Uh, and uh, he's laid out pretty clear rules on what will be unacceptable and, and certainly threatening physical violence is, is one of those things. And um, Jim, I don't know if this is <laughs> anywhere close to true, but uh, some folks have speculated that maybe Elon Musk expected this to happen and he secretly developed a phone that'll compete with the iPhone <laughs> as soon as uh, uh, Twitter gets kicked out of the App Store. I'm not sure he's that uh, prescient, but uh, that would be pretty funny if it actually happened. But That uh, would be 12-level chess. Uh, the <laughs> I mean, probably like, he probably has done it, but he accidentally left it in the car that he blasted into space. You know, so uh, the Tesla that is now orbiting the Earth with a, with a uh, astronaut with a you know uh, dummy body in it, just because they did it, just because they could. That seems like the sort of thing he would do. Something really awesome, but kind of like, wait, why did you do that? That's that's really the definition of space junk <laughs> right there. Uh, it was cool for about 30 seconds. But uh, anyway, uh, fascinating to watch, and we'll see what happens here. Yeah, the double standard by Apple, uh, unsurprising, but uh, maddening, uh, to say the least. Uh, you don't love to see Congress uh, getting involved, but uh, on some of these things, maybe they have to at some point. All right, Jim, on to our bad martini now, and uh, deja vu all over again, potentially. As it relates to unrest in Haiti, it's been a while now. Those of us who are getting up there uh, certainly remember the early days of the Clinton administration and U.S. involvement in uh, restoring, I believe it was, uh, Aristide to power uh, when Raul Cedras took over back there, 93-94 time frame. Of course, there was the massive earthquake in, uh, I think it was 2010, and the U.S. certainly played a major role in, in helping to respond to that. Unsurprisingly, uh, problems have returned to Haiti in a massive way. Uh, Fox News reporting earlier this week that top officials in the Biden administration are pushing for U.S. allies uh, to deploy troops to Haiti to avert a potentially massive migration event. Uh, attempts to migrate to the U.S. by boat from Haiti have already risen more than 400 percent since last year. 
and uh, Daniel Foote, who served as the U.S. Special Envoy to Haiti in 2021, uh, telling the New York Times that uh, this mass migration is already upon us. The next step becomes biblical with people falling off anything that can float. We aren't that far away from that. And so whether we want to get involved, it may be heading our way and, and possibly already is. You point out in the, the morning jolt today, Jim, that this is a, an issue that the Biden administration is trying to pass the buck on to our allies while keeping our troops out of it. And our allies, unsurprisingly, uh, don't want to do that if the U.S. isn't willing to get its hands dirty as well. But I'm guessing that the public appetite for that, given, every, given everything else that's happening, is also pretty low. So we're in a mess. It needs to be addressed. And nobody wants to do anything about it. So I wrote about this in today's Morning Jolt, and the reason I chose to write about it was I saw the headline in the New York Times, and I was like, wait, administration considering military intervention in Haiti, you know, it's a Democratic president who's about to face a Republican Congress. Uh, I was like, did, did, I, did I time warp back to the 1990s? I've seen this debate before. It really didn't turn out very well for anybody, particularly the Haitians. And, you know, if you look at this circumstance, and no doubt, the Haitians are suffering terribly. It's not just the usual poverty. It's not just the usual uh, lack of civil society and functioning infrastructure and all of that they've had since the earthquake um, and corruption and all that stuff. Just the, the gang warfare, it sounds like something out of, of Mad Max or something, that basically the government has only nominal control over the country. Uh, a lot of government officials have alliances with these gangs, and it is like one step above anarchy right now. So if you look at that and you want to help, I, I, I don't begrudge you that. I'm just not quite convinced that a U.S. military intervention will necessarily do that. We had a lot of these debates in the 1990s, thinking of not just of Haiti, but of Somalia. The U.S. military is really not a great you know, nation-building apparatus. Uh, you, know, you, look at that, or, you, know, you can look at our experience in Iraq. You can look at our experience in Afghanistan. It is very tough to set up a functioning government that will take care of the people and be responsible and accountable to the people where it has not flourished and it is very tough to uh, bring it from the outside. Now, it's worth noting that what's the people who some people who are in the current Haitian government do want us to help. That has not, um, you know, it's, and so I think that that's probably what's prompting the Biden administration to think this. After six months, the U.S. handed it off to the United Nations and the United Nations occupation or presence in Haiti went about as badly as it possibly could. Now, listeners to this podcast are a, a well-educated audience. Maybe they remember hearing about the widespread sex abuse committed by UN peacekeepers. And you can't see me making air quotes as I as I say that. Um, just an appalling abuse of their, their duties and their responsibilities for a population they're allegedly supposed to be protecting, coupled with uh, something that, I, again, I'm kind of stunned that this didn't get more attention, uh, the United Nations accidentally uh, dumped its waste into a river and set off a cholera outbreak that then killed 10,000 people. Now think about that number and contemplate. Al-Qaeda only killed about 3,000 people on 9-11, and they were trying to kill people. Right? The AUN accidentally killed 10,000 people in a country they were trying to protect as peacekeepers. So I, I also, you look at that, you kind of wonder, how much would the Haitians welcome a foreign military force or multinational peacekeepers. And then kind of the third aspect of this that just, as I said, it would be comic or funny if it wasn't all so sad, is the Biden administration once again deploying the lead from behind philosophy of saying, wow, situation in Haiti is terrible. Somebody's got to do something. Hey, Canada, you want in? No? Brazil? Anybody else? No? 
lo and behold, you cannot lead from behind. You know, there's a call for the coalition. The U.S. is trying to form a coalition of the willing when we ourselves are not willing. That, you know, that I, that doesn't work. Nobody else wants to take on the responsibility of Haiti either. They know, you know, how difficult it is, how intractable the problems seem. And, you know, no one wants to suffer their own casualties uh, trying to bring peace, order, stability, and human rights to a country that really doesn't have much of any of those things and has had one problem after another going back decades and decades. Look, I'm not going to pretend I have all the answers here, but I kind of, you know, I look at this and I'm kind of, you know, we keep hearing, you know, Biden strode around the stage and he and Blinken and the rest of them are like, oh, America is back, you know, and oh, we're, none of that isolation. We're going to reprioritize human rights. And here they are. And they're saying, hey, uh, we got to outsource this Haiti thing. Anybody else want in? Can't, you know, Trudeau? Or, why are you running away? You know, this this bizarre sense of we can get somebody else to handle it when we aren't willing to, to play our own role. So um, kind of frustrating, really deeply dispiriting and exhausting. I'm not going to pretend to have the solutions. I just know that a U.S. military intervention, if, if you want to make the case for a U.S. military intervention now, you need to have a really persuasive argument about why this foreign military intervention in Haiti will turn out better than the last ones. No, that's well put. Uh, it's been a mess, and your heart absolutely breaks for the Haitian people, like you said, due to the poverty, due to the lack of any really social structure, uh, you know, rights that, that we have and that sort of thing. And, and now, of course, you got the gang violence uh, that has the military afraid to even patrol the streets sometimes down there. It's just total chaos. And then you talk about what the U.N. did last time, and it's just, you know, the old phrase is the, the most dangerous and fearful words are, I'm from the U.S. government, I'm here to help, but I'm from the United Nations, and I'm here to help is, is right up there. But uh, every time they put a footprint down, they, they act like Ralph Wiggum from um, The Simpsons and go, I'm helping. And then it turns out they didn't do that much good at all. So, like you said, complicated situation, and uh, hopefully, hopefully it improves. All right, Jim, on to our crazy martini now. And you mentioned uh, before that Biden is heading into the second half of this term with a Republican Congress. Probably. <laughs> because uh, you've got uh, the Republicans have won at least 221 seats. Could be 222. It's the end of November, and California 13 has still not figured out who won that race yet, which is completely ludicrous. Nonetheless... Um, there is a problem. Kevin McCarthy easily won the vote inside the Republican conference to be the GOP candidate for speaker on the floor come January 3rd. His only opposition, I believe, was uh, Congressman Andy Biggs of Arizona. The vote was 188 to 31. But he's going to need 218 when it comes to the floor on January 3rd. And there are already two people saying they won't do that from the Republican conference. One is Biggs and the other now is Congressman Bob Good, Republican of Virginia, uh, telling reporters on Tuesday that he will not vote for McCarthy, will not vote present, and will vote for an alternative candidate. So if the Republicans don't win California 13, uh, McCarthy can only afford to lose one more vote. If they win it, he can afford to lose four. Uh, but if he doesn't have 218 votes... It's not like Nancy Pelosi or I guess it would be Hakeem Jeffries now would uh, be the speaker if he gets more votes. you got to get to 218. But uh, you've got folks like Don Bacon of Nebraska uh, suggesting that he would be willing to reach across the aisle to elect a speaker if his fellow Republicans don't unite behind McCarthy 
or another candidate. And Jim, it certainly seems like there isn't another candidate emerging at this point. Um, I'm not the biggest Kevin McCarthy fan. I don't uh, think he's you know the most conservative guy on the block. But uh, if you don't have anybody to run against him, your options are pretty limited here. And if you've got people in your conference threatening to work with Democrats to elect a speaker, you might want to get your ducks in a row. Yeah, look, I you know similar opinion on Kevin McCarthy, but my attitude is you know if you want you know to change leadership, not liking the current guy is only half the equation. You need another half of the equation, which is, and I'd like to replace this leader with this other person. And oh, by the way, you really need that other person to want the job. Right now, there aren't a lot of House rep- Look, the job of being Speaker in the next Congress is going to stink. It's going to be a dirty job. It's going to be involved very few, little, very passing very little legislation, a lot of you know intractable partisan divisions, trying to keep together a caucus that is like herding cats. If there was some better option out there, if somebody could point to Congressman X is the guy who knows how to unite all Republicans, who can represent everybody from uh, Brian Fitzpatrick, who represents Bucks County, who's, you know, I don't know if you want to say the, the most moderate, but like most non-hardline House Republican to the most hardline House Republicans. And you could say this is the person who can knows, you know, understands their districts, understands what they can vote for, and what they can't vote for, and who can keep everybody unified. If that person's out there, great. But I don't see that person out there, which means Kevin McCarthy, as disappointing or frustrating or uh, underwhelming as he might be, he might still be the best option. And I kind of look at this to House Republicans and say, okay, what do you want? Because right now it appears the option is McCarthy or it's anarchy. I exaggerate slightly, but just kind of a sense of of not having any leader, that there isn't any other figure who's, you know, waiting in the wings or ready to swoop in and be unifying. It's a little bit different compared to the last big, you know, House leadership fight where the House Freedom Caucus did get frustrated with uh, uh, Boehner and they end up going with Paul Ryan. I don't know if they were that much happier with them. <laughs> I think, you know, part of this is like baked into the cake of the job. The person who's speaker is very rarely going to be as conservative as you want them to be. They're probably very unlikely to be as outspoken or table pounding or any of that kind of stuff they're going to be. The person has to be able to build consensus and very rarely is a firebrand going to be able to do that. That's where we are. That's that's the circumstance. So my attitude towards every House Republican would be if you don't have a better alternative, you kind of have to back Kevin McCarthy. And you can try to, you know, uh, arm twist and finagle and say, well, I'll support you if you'll do X, Y, and Z or something like that. You can do that. And maybe that's what a lot of this is. We won't really know until push comes to shove and they actually hold the vote. But without an alternative, this is just griping about McCarthy. And, you know, a good question for all these House Republicans are, are you there to actually get something done? Or do you want to preen? Do you want to say, ah, I'm, I'm mad at leadership and kind of throw a tantrum and not have any better solution to offer on the table? No, that's a good point. Remember, Kevin McCarthy was supposed to replace John Boehner. And then he went on TV and said, hey, the only reason we got the Hillary Clinton emails is because we did the Benghazi committee. Not smart. So that's one of the reasons people don't like him. He's not uh, all that savvy, uh, kind of a backslapper type. But um, I don't think it's going to get to the point where there's a Democratic speaker in a Republican majority House. Although, given where we are now and the absurdity of politics, you never know these things. But even if there is a Republican majority and there is a Democratic speaker... 
here's what the Speaker can do, even, even though his party's in the minority. The Speaker of the House is responsible for administering the oath of office to the members of the U.S. House of Representatives. That's no big deal. Uh, giving members permission to speak on the floor, designating members to serve as Speaker pro tem, counting and declaring all votes, appointing members to committees, sending bills to committees, and signing bills and resolutions that pass the House. So the majority leader still controls the legislative agenda, but there's a lot even a moderate Democratic speaker could do to gum up the works of an operation that's already going to be pretty gummed up. Gummed is one word for it, Greg. <laughs> oh, man. So uh, buckle up. We'll see where uh, where we are in just over a month on this, I assume. We'll know heading into January 3rd whether McCarthy has the votes or not. He would be smart to lock that down if he's at all concerned about it. But, uh, Jim, nothing's ever easy these days. Plenty more craziness and hopefully good, but also bad news to come in the week. And uh, we'll pick it up tomorrow. See you then. At least we're slightly more than halfway, Greg. See you tomorrow. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, do uh, subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch if you don't already, and please tell a friend about us as well. Also, thank you for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. They matter a lot, so please keep them coming. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Buy Jim's brand new novel, Gathering Five Storms, the accompanying short story, Saving the Devil. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a terrific Wednesday and join us again on Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch. This week on the Federalist Radio Hour. I mean, how are Republicans and Democrats falling on different sides of this? There's you know, some civil libertarians on the right that would be very staunchly and, and have been supportive of uh, people like Edward Snowden. But also on the left, there's increasing, I think, trust of <laughs> some of these uh, tech companies and uh, their ability to, to help. I'm Emily Jashinsky of The Federalist. Subscribe to The Federalist on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.